It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of my favorite genres of movies are mysteries, and I like mysteries that, you know, are not easy to figure out. They're not obvious as what will happen. The mysteries that kind of make you think they have twists and turns, and uh, they're just not what you're expecting. And since I like mysteries, one of my favorite characters typically in movies are those mysterious characters, characters that at first you don't really know much about, but as the movie progresses and the character's development happens and all of a sudden you start to realize that they're quite significant and important to the plot and maybe even the most important character in the movie. Um, And I bring this up because, you know, one of the most mysterious characters in all of the Old Testament is a man by the name of Melchizedek. And we really only have four verses in the Old Testament that speak about this mysterious Man. First, we have a small historical account of Melchizedek and his interaction with Abraham in three verses in Genesis chapter 14. And second, we have an even smaller prophetic statement about Melchizedek in just one verse in Psalm 110 verse 4. And Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, meaning that uh, it's speaking prophecy about something that the Messiah would be. Uh, And so this is connected with Jesus. Um, And those are the only mentions that we have in the Old Testament. And the only mention that we have of Melchizedek in the New Testament is here in the book of Hebrews. And you think, well, there's only four verses total in the Old Testament. Well, the author of Hebrews spends the entire chapter 7 speaking about and revealing to us some of the mysteries of this man Melchizedek and his connection to Jesus. And the main purpose that the author has in spending an entire chapter dealing with this mysterious man Melchizedek is to show another aspect of the greatness of Jesus. And that's really been the theme throughout this entire book. He started off telling us, hey, Jesus is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than all the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. And then we came into chapter 4 and the author started building the case that Jesus is also greater than any of the priests, especially the high priests in Judaism. And then chapter 5, the author reveals that Jesus meets the qualification for a high priest. And this was something that we noted was very important to the initial readers that came from uh, a Jewish background because they would have thought, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. Jesus does not meet the requirement to be 
a high priest because under the Levitical system of the law, God made very clear only people who are of the tribe of Levi can be a priest. And if you want to be high priest, only those who are firstborn descendants of Aaron can be a high priest. Well, Jesus did not come from the priestly tribe of Levi, and he was not a firstborn descendant of Aaron. Jesus came from the kingly tribe of Judah, the tribe that King David came through. And that's actually significant for another time because Jesus is going to rule and reign from the throne of David for eternity in his second coming. So they would recognize, well, wait a second, we got a problem here. Jesus is from the wrong tribe. Jesus is from the wrong lineage. So how can Jesus be our high priest? Well, to answer that question, for the very first time in the book of Hebrews, the author brings up this mysterious man, Melchizedek, and he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, that prophetic psalm prophesying about the coming Messiah, which says that God the Father called Jesus a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the reason that Jesus can be a high priest, even though he's from the wrong tribe, even though he's not from the lineage of Aaron, is because Jesus' priesthood is not from the Levitical order. It's from a whole different order. It's from the order of Melchizedek. Now, you would have thought right after making such a bold statement, such a fascinating statement, a statement that definitely needs some explanation to come with it, that right away the author would have said, all right, now let me tell you about Melchizedek. Now let me tell you how Melchizedek is connected to Jesus, and let me explain this whole thing about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's what you think would happen, but right after the author makes that statement... He totally changes the topic. And we're told why he changes the topic in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He says this, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So right after the author mentions Jesus and his connection to Melchizedek, and he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, he's like, hey, I got a lot to say about this, but it's hard to explain to you guys. And the reason why is because you are dull of hearing. And so he says, you know what, before I get into Melchizedek, we're going to have a little detour here. I'm going to give you guys a warning about your spiritual immaturity. I'm going to give you a warning about your dullness. And that's what we've been looking for through for the last couple of weeks from uh, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6. There's been this warning. But now at the end of chapter 6, the author brings us back to where he left us before the warning. This is how chapter 6 ends. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he's speaking to Melchizedek and says, I can't keep going because you guys are dull of hearing, but I got a lot to say about it. And he gives this big warning and he finishes the warning once again, bringing us back to this mysterious character 
Melchizedek. And now we're going to transition this morning into Hebrews chapter 7, where this entire chapter is devoted to unpackaging the mystery behind Melchizedek and his connection to Jesus. And there's a lot in this chapter. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, the author references the historical account of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, and he's telling us who this mysterious man is and his connection to Jesus. In verses 4 through 10, the author gives us two reasons why Melchizedek and Jesus are greater than Abraham and the Levitical priests. In verses 11 through 19, the author reveals why we need a new high priest from a different priesthood because it's greater and it's better for us. And the author is going to unpackage that for us. And then in verses 20 through 28, the author reveals the greatness of Jesus, our high priest, over all other high priests. And so as you can see, there's a lot of amazing things in this chapter. And really, if we want to do it justice, there's no way we can unpackage all of it in just one teaching. So this morning, we're going to go through verses 1 through 10. And then next week, we will look at verses 11 through 28. So the author starts in chapter 7 by referencing the only historical account, those three verses in Genesis chapter 14 that we have of Melchizedek, and he's going to be uh, sharing some insights about that. And so I want to start with reading those verses to you so you can understand what it is that the author is referencing for us. And so before we get into it, let's look at that. And then I want to kind of set the scene for you here. So Abraham and his lot are in the promised land. Lot chooses to go and dwell in the city of Sodom. And all of those in Sodom are, are taken captive by these four kings and their army. And Abraham hears about it. And so Abraham gets 318 of his own servants and they ride and they go after this army that has taken Lot and all of the inhabitants of Sodom captive and God gives them victory, and they get all those people and the spoils, and they take it away. And so as Abraham is traveling from that victory back to his home, he encounters this mysterious man, Melchizedek. And this is what we're told in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemy into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. So as Abraham is traveling back home from this victory that he had over uh, these people who came against the inhabitants of Sodom, this man, Melchizedek, comes out to meet Abram. And we're told that he is the king of Salem, and also that he is the priest of God Most High, and that he brings out to Abraham bread and wine, and that he blesses Abraham. And that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils of what he just got in that rescue from Sodom. So those are the only three verses that we have of this historical account 
of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is now going to expound upon that for us. He's going to take that account and he's going to be referencing that, but he's going to be uh, opening our eyes to some very important things about who this Melchizedek is and the connection he has to Jesus. And so now that we have that background in mind, let's come to chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and see what the author says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first, transla- uh, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So here the author gives us a fascinating description of this mysterious man, Melchizedek. And he's actually going to give us eight descriptive things about Melchizedek. And we're going to look at these eight things. And after we look at these eight things, we're going to seek to answer the question, who is Melchizedek? The first thing that the author tells us and points out about Melchizedek is that he is a both a king and a priest. He is the king of Salem, and he is the priest of God Most High. Now, this is something very significant because under the Levitical system, God did not allow one person to occupy both of those offices. You could not be king and priest or priest and king. That was not allowed under the system that God allowed. So you could be king only or you could be priest only, but you couldn't be both. But here we see Melchizedek is both. He's not just king of Salem. He's also priest of God Most High. The second thing the author tells us about Melchizedek is that he blessed Abraham as the priest of God Most High. And that's one of the roles of a priest, to bless others. And so as Melchizedek is in this priestly role, he blesses Abraham. The third thing the author tells us is that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. Abraham gives him a tenth of all the spoil that he just received from that rescue from Sodom. The fourth thing the author tells us about Melchizedek is that his name is translated King of Righteousness. In Hebrew, Melchi, it means king, and Zedek means righteousness. And so when you put those two together, you get Melchizedek, King of Righteousness. So the author wants us to know he's not just some ordinary king. He is the king of righteousness. The fifth thing the author tells us about Melchizedek is that he is the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. This Hebrew word Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Now, this is an interesting thing that the author brings out here. It really has a twofold purpose. First, it reveals that Melchizedek was a king of peace. He was a peaceful king, but he's also revealing where he had dominion over, that the the city in which he was king over was Salem. Now, what's interesting is in Hebrew, Jeru means city, Salem means peace. You put those two together, you have Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. 
And so this king, this Melchizedek, he is actually the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of peace, and he rules over the city of peace, Jerusalem. The sixth thing the author tells us about Melchizedek is that he is without father, without mother, and without genealogy. So there's no trace of this person's parents. We have no genealogy of him. And the seventh thing the author tells us about Melchizedek is he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, and that he remains a priest continually. No beginning. Melchizedek wasn't created, wasn't born, no end of life, meaning he never dies, and he remains a priest continually because he never dies. All the other priests, they only had the life that they had, and then when they died, their priest reign ended. Now, someone who has no beginning, who wasn't created, who never dies, we refer to them as eternal. Melchizedek was an eternal priest. The eighth thing that the author tells us about Melchizedek is that he is made like the Son of God. Now, this term, Son of God, it is used specifically to refer to Jesus Christ. So something important to note here is that the author is not saying that Jesus is like Melchizedek. He is saying that Melchizedek is like Jesus. You see, the author is using the greatness of Melchizedek and the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood in order to highlight the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of Jesus's priesthood. Now, there is a debate among scholars as to the kind of connection that Melchizedek has to Jesus. And a lot of that debate is centered around this term, made like the Son of God. You see, the Greek word here that is used, that's translated made like, it's the only time that it's used in the Bible. And this Greek word really can be uh, translated or used in two different ways. First, it can be used to mean to be made like something else, meaning it is similar to something else. And the second way it can be used to, is to mean an exact copy of something else, meaning to be identical. Now, since there's no other uses of the Greek word in the Bible, we have no other way to reference how it was used in other places. And so there's kind of this debate as to what the author means by this term. And that has really caused there to be two different views as to the relationship of Melchizedek to Jesus. The first view is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. A type, we have lots of typology in the Bible, is just a picture of Jesus. So it's not Jesus himself, it's just something that's very similar to Jesus. And so they would say that, hey, this is just speaking of someone who is very similar to Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus in order to make a spiritual point about Jesus. The second view is that Melchizedek is a Christophany, meaning a physical appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. An example of a Christophany is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fiery furnace for not worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar's huge statue of himself. And right after they're thrown into the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he looks inside and he says, you know what, didn't we not cast three men bound into the fire? And his counselor says, oh yes, king, it was just three men. And he says, well, I see four and they're loose 
And they're walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And then he says, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. You see, the fourth person in the fiery furnace who is like the Son of God, that is Jesus Himself. It's a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And that is why many, including myself, believe that Melchizedek is also a Christophany, a physical appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I'll give you four main reasons for why I have come to that conclusion personally. The first reason is because of the eight descriptions were given for Melchizedek. And now some of these descriptions could definitely be of Jesus. Well, they're all definitely of Jesus. And also it could have been of someone who lived, you know, at the time of Abraham, who was just a natural man and a king. For example, Jesus is both king and priest. Well, it's definitely possible that there was a man who was both king and priest during the time of Abraham. Jesus blesses us as God's high priest. And that could have been true of a man as well, that he was in that role blessing people. Jesus receives our tithes, and that could have been true of a man too. Jesus is the king of peace over the city of peace, Jerusalem, and that could have been true. This man could have been a a peaceful king ruling over Jerusalem. But you know, there are three descriptions about Melchizedek that really would only be able to describe God, only be able to describe Jesus. They wouldn't really fit at all with a man. The first one is Jesus is, as we know, the king of righteousness. He is the only one who ever was righteous who lived. The only reason that you and I ever can have righteousness is because we receive Jesus's righteousness. He gives us his own because in ourselves, we are sinful and not righteous. And so the only person ever, I mean, imagine politics or politicians today or kings uh, thinking of any of them using the title them of righteousness. We would never conclude any person with that title except for the only one who truly was righteous, Jesus himself. Second, only Jesus has no beginning or end and is eternal. I mean, everybody has a, a time where they're born and a time where they die. So someone who wasn't born and who is eternal and who will never die, well, that's only God. And so once again, that doesn't fit with a man that only fits with Jesus, who's God. Third, if that term made like, like we spoke of before, is speaking of an exact copy or identical, well, then definitely that has to be referring to Jesus because he is the only identical son of God. So that's the first reason, just the the list of descriptions. The second reason I believe that Jesus is actually Melchizedek is because what we're told in Hebrews 7, verse 8, which says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he, speaking of Melchizedek, or Jesus, receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And notice this contrast of mortal men versus an immortal person. So he's clearly saying that this isn't some mortal guy who lived 2,000 years ago who was just a type. This is someone who was immortal. The third reason I believe that Melchizedek is actually Jesus is because of what Melchizedek brings out to Abraham. Remember that? Maybe that caught your eye in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine to Abraham. 
Oh, does that ring a bell about Jesus? What did Jesus bring out to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed? Bread and wine. What does Jesus tell us to use in order to remember him through communion? Bread and wine. And there's one other reason that I feel like Melchizedek is actually Jesus, and that's actually because of something that Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. He says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus makes a very bold statement here. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad in it. You start thinking, well, wait a second. When did Abraham see Jesus? I mean, Jesus was born 2,000 years later in Bethlehem when he, when he came as a man then. So, so when is it that Abraham had this experience with Jesus? Well, I believe Jesus is referencing Melchizedek. That he is Melchizedek and that he had this interaction with Abraham and can say, yes, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced and was glad in it. Now, here's something very important to note. and It doesn't always happen when you have differing views, but I'm pleased that it happens here. Whether you believe that Jesus is just a type, that he's similar to Melchizedek, or whether you believe that Jesus actually is Melchizedek is actually not something that changes the point that the author is trying to make. You see, the point is using Melchizedek and the greatness that he is to point to the fact that Jesus is great. And so whether it's a type, a picture of Jesus, or whether it is actually Jesus, doesn't really change that. And so, you know, whether you want to conclude that it's actually Jesus or just a type of Jesus, it's kind of doesn't really matter, which is great because what the author is going to build the case for doesn't change with that. So now that he's given this description of Melchizedek, he's going to now move into two reasons why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and the Levitical priests that followed after Abraham. In verses 4 through 10, we're told this. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Notice here the author wants us to consider something. He says, I want you to consider how great Melchizedek was. And his main purpose in having us consider the greatness of Melchizedek is so that we would then turn and look and see the greatness of Jesus Christ. And there are two things here that the author wants us to consider about the greatness of Melchizedek. The first thing he wants us to consider about the greatness of Melchizedek, what made him so great, is the fact that Abraham tithed to him. The author says, to whom even the patriarch Abraham 
gave a tenth of the spoils. Now notice that emphasis. He didn't just say Abraham. He's like, even the patriarch Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. What's he doing? He's trying to look at the, the great Abraham. I mean, the one in Judaism that we elevate above all, our, our father, the patriarch, he gave a tithe to somebody else, which shows whoever he gave that tithe to must have been pretty great. And notice we're told he didn't just give any old tenth of what he had, which is a tithe. We're told he gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, this is interesting. This Greek word translated spoils means the choicest, speaking of the choicest spoils of war. He's referring to the best things that Abraham had. And so of all that Abraham had, he didn't say, well, here, you can have the leftovers. I'll take the the 90% of the good stuff, and you can have that 10% of leftovers. He says, no, I'm giving you the 10% of the best, and I'll take the 90% of the leftovers. The fact that Abraham ties the best of what he has to Melchizedek, it shows that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And the author goes on to share a few more points to kind of drive home this point that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And this would have been hard for Jews to understand. I mean, imagine, I mean, here's the, at the top of the list. You look at who do we have in, in our list that we think is greatest. You know, Abraham is going to be right up there at the top of the greatest person in Judaism. And so to say, well, well this kind of obscure, mysterious guy, Melchizedek, is greater than Abraham? So he's going to kind of unpackage this a little more for them to help them understand this reality. And he goes on to say this. Indeed, those who are of the loins of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren. Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. Now, I want you to understand something here. Under the Levitical law, God made a command. The command was that all the 11 tribes had to tithe in order to take care of the tribe of Levi, the priest, so that the priest could then do the work of the temple. Because all these other people, you know, they have jobs that are creating money and income, and and the priests, they were meant to do the spiritual work of the temple. And so God says, in order for your needs to be provided for, I'm going to have the nation of Israel tithe a tenth in order to take care of the needs of the priests, and also in order to take care of the needs of the temple. And anything that needed to be repaired or anything that needed to be done, it came from those tithes. And we have something very similar in Christianity. The tithes that you give to a church help provide for the needs of pastors and those doing ministry in the church. They help provide for uh, the building and, and the practical expenses that come with it. Now, the author is sharing a, a contrast with us. And I want you to note this contrast. It's a contrast between the tithes that the Israelites gave to the priests versus the tithes that Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And there's two things in this contrast that I think are are important to highlight because they show how different they are. The first thing is that the Israelites are commanded to give these tithes to the priests. So they didn't necessarily do it because they wanted to. They did it because they had to. But notice the difference between Abraham. He wasn't commanded to give to Melchizedek. This was something that was completely voluntary. He willingly chooses to do it. Now, when you voluntarily choose to tithe to someone instead of doing it because you're commanded to do it, 
It really demonstrates just how great that person is who you voluntarily have chosen to give to. So Abraham voluntarily choosing to tithe to Melchizedek shows that Melchizedek definitely is greater than Abraham, a greater, and he's also greater than the priests of the Levitical system. The second important thing to note about this contrast is the Israelites only tithe to those who came from the loins of Abraham, speaking of their brethren, fellow Jews. So it was Israelites giving to Israelites, descendants of Abraham only giving to other descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, guess what? He's not a descendant of Abraham. The author says, he whose genealogy is not derived from the Israelites received tithes from Abraham. So Abraham gave someone a tithe who wasn't a part of the genealogy of Israel, not connected to them. And so they might be thinking, well, yeah, well, we'll give to our own brethren. We'll tie to them. We'll help the priest do this work of the Lord. But wait a second, we're not going to give to somebody who's not a part of Israel. Abraham gave to this person who wasn't a part of the genealogy, which shows just how great and how much greater this person was. A.W. Pink wrote this. To give tithes to another who is the servant of God is a token of official respect. It is the recognition and acknowledgement of his superior status. The value of such official tokens is measured by the dignity and rank of the person making them. Now, Abraham was a person of very high dignity, both naturally and spiritually. Naturally, he was the founder of the Jewish nation. Spiritually, he was the father of all believers. In his person was concentrated all the sacred dignity belonging to the people of God. How great then must be Melchizedek, seeing that Abraham himself owned his official superiority, and therefore how great must be that order of priesthood to which he belonged. Now the author continues this thought about Melchizedek being greater than Abraham and the Levitical priest because Abraham tithed, to them in verses 8 through 10, which says this. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he received them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes and paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What the author is saying here is here in our time, speaking of the time that he wrote this, mortal men, like the Levitical priests, they received tithes. But there, during the time of Abraham, Melchizedek, an immortal man, received tithes of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So once again, hey, Melchizedek's greater than Abraham because Abraham's just a, a mortal man and Melchizedek is an immortal man that continues to live. Now, the author takes it a step further and says, even Levi, who receives tithes and pays tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So it's obvious that Abraham felt Melchizedek was greater than him because he tithed to him, but the author is saying, you know what, I'm going to stretch it out to Abraham's descendants Levi and the priesthood as well, because the tribe of Levi, they were kind of genetically in the loins of Abraham. And so the author is making this case that all of the Levitical priesthood basically through Abraham tied to Melchizedek as well. Now he's doing an allegory, and that's why he says, so to speak. He doesn't want you to take it overly literally, but he's just building this case of not only is he greater than Abraham, 
But the descendants of Abraham and the Levitical priests as well is his point that he's trying to make here. So the first reason the author gives us for why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and greater than Levitical priests that came through Abraham is because Abraham and his descendants through him voluntarily tithed the best he had to Melchizedek, who is not his descendant. It's a strong case. The fact that Abraham ties to Melchizedek and the way in which he tied voluntarily and what he tied, the best of he, what he had, all of those things just builds a strong case that Abraham definitely recognized, and so should they, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, the second reason that the author gives for why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is in verses 6 through 7. It says this, But he whose genealogy is not derived from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So the second reason why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is because Melchizedek is the one blessing Abraham, not the other way around. Notice the author emphasizes Melchizedek blesses Abraham who has the promises. He's reminding the readers, hey, Melchizedek's not just blessing any old person. He's blessing Abraham. I mean, the, the one that God gave all these promises. The great Abraham is the one he's blessing. You see, the Jews held Abraham in such high esteem, and what the author wants them to recognize is, if someone blesses him, think how great they are. I mean, Abraham, we already recognize how great Abraham is, but if someone is great enough to bless Abraham, they're even greater than Abraham. And the author shares a truth that these readers would have been very aware of concerning blessings, something that should make plenty of sense to us. He says, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. When the author says beyond all contradiction, he is making a statement that says, you know, everyone knows, everybody accepts. There's no uh, one who contradicts this. Contradicts what? That the lesser is blessed by the better. What he's saying is we all realize and know that those who are greater are the ones who bless those who are lesser. It's never the other way around. The lesser don't bless the greater. The greater bless the lesser. That, that's something there's no contradiction in. We all are aware of that. We all understand that. And so he's sharing that to make the clear conclusion. Well, wait a second. Who blessed who here? If the greater blesses the lesser, then we can obviously see who is who. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So Abraham is the lesser who's being blessed. Melchizedek is the greater doing the blessing. So the second reason why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is because Melchizedek blessed Abraham and the greater always blesses the lesser. And as I mentioned before, that this would have been kind of a mind-boggling thought to a lot of these Jews thinking the one that we hold to such high esteem, Abraham, this mysterious Melchizedek is even greater than him. And as I mentioned before, that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point isn't for us to walk away and say, wow, this Melchizedek, that's a great guy. The ultimate point is to use Melchizedek's greatness and the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ and how great he is. 
You see, Melchizedek at the very least is a type of Jesus, or he is Jesus himself in the Old Testament. So the ultimate point is if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and the Levitical priest, and if Melchizedek is a type of Jesus or actually Jesus, then Jesus is also greater than Abraham and he's also greater than the Levitical priest. Now in these 10 verses that we've looked at this morning, the author only gives one command. He's given a lot of information about Melchizedek. He's trying to help us understand who he is, why he's great. But there's only one command And that command is in verse 4, and it's a command that we really need to understand, a command that's so important for us to follow. Notice what it is. We're told, consider how great this man was. The command is, consider how great Melchizedek, or Jesus, was. Now, the Greek word translated consider is theorek. It's where we get our English word theater. The word means to look closely at, to give careful consideration to. And I thought that very interesting that it's where we get our English word theater because most of us here not only enjoy, but are willing to give multiple hours of our time in a single day to look closely at, to give careful consideration to a movie. We'll go to the theater to watch one. We'll have our own home theater and watch it on Netflix or whatever you know streaming service we use. But we're quite happy to invest a couple hours of our time in a single day to look at and to consider a movie for which the most part has no real benefit to our life. To consider a movie that probably does really nothing for us. And if we're willing to give two hours or four hours or however much you watch movies in a single day to look at and consider that, how much more should we be willing to consider to look at Jesus? Give careful attention to him. You know, I think it's interesting that most people are willing to look closely at, give careful attention to things that they consider to be great. People will do this for a great piece of art. They'll do it for a great movie. They'll do it for a great piece of music or song. They'll do it for a great book. They'll do it for a great person. You see, most people, if they believe that something is great, that to them it's then worth their time. It's worth their consideration. It's worth giving time to to look at and contemplate. Well, the author of Hebrews wants us to know there is nothing greater than Jesus. There is no one greater than Jesus. And so if we're willing to give our time to consider a movie or a song or a piece of art or an individual, surely we should be willing to give our time to something that is far greater than all of those things put together, Jesus Christ. You know, we just went through a week where we lost things that we often take for granted. Power. Heat, water, and I'm sure that if you receive those things back, that you have a greater appreciation for those things than you did when you just had them every day and you never lost them. You know, I think this should be a reminder to us not to take Jesus for granted. Not to take the privilege of time with Jesus for granted. Oh, it's a blessing. It's always there. 
Sometimes because it's always there and it's such a blessing, we just neglect it. We don't realize what a great privilege it is and how great Jesus is. And I think if we truly grasp that and we had that knowledge that the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us, our response would be, I am going to consider Jesus. I am going to give time to contemplating him and spending time with him and focusing on him so I can learn more of him and grow to become more like him. Jesus is greater than everything, and I want to encourage you and myself to make a commitment this week each day to consider him. Let's pray.